who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hey, it's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Homestead on the Corner was brought to you by our Season 1 patrons. Shirley Casperson, Virginia Spots, Jesse Steele, Susan Dalian, Sierra Classic Theater, and Mammoth Lakes Repertory Theater. If you'd like to support the show as well, then please go to patreon.com slash homesteadcorner and check out our rewards. Good morning, everyone. This is Trevor Van Winkle, and you're listening to Homestead on the Corner. Time to get started. Again. It's an old song, it's a sad song, but we sing it anyway. Once upon a time, in such and such a place, something happened. Those three statements, to me, sum up the storytelling journey, both the journey of the storyteller and of the story itself. The first is my own, the second is from the musical Hadestown, and the last one is from John York's Into the Woods, a five-act journey into story. Together, they encapsulate one of the great appeals, and greatest mysteries, of storytelling. That it's something human beings have been doing ever since we learned to speak, and yet it feels completely fresh and new every time we begin a new story. Whether it's an old song or a new one, the first words of every story, written or read, connects it to a tradition going back hundreds of thousands of years. It is informed, influenced, and colored by all that came before, but it is a new verse in the never-ending melody, and we all can't help but listen in when we hear it. As the next season of Homestead on the Corner begins, I thought it was high time to dust off my original pilot episode, rework it, and talk about beginnings. After all, we're starting a new chapter with this show, turning in a new direction as we sail into this strange and unknown world we suddenly find ourselves in. 
In the same way every story is not isolated, but just a new phrase in the eternal project of storytelling, this podcast is going to continue as it changes and evolves. A new cycle is beginning. And, in the words of Frank Herbert's Dune, a beginning is a time for taking the most delicate care that the balances are correct. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Check out new episodes Mondays and Fridays for a wide variety of topics and news episodes. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Rage on. Let's get our definitions clear before we get started. When I talk about the beginning of a story... I'm largely referring to it in the sense of a beginning, middle, and end summary of the three-act structure. In other words, the first act of the story, from what Blake Snyder calls the opening image in Save the Cat, to the first plot point, the first decision made by the protagonist that spins the narrative in a new direction. The first act varies widely in length, structure, and narrative function, but there are some key things that it has to accomplish to successfully set the story in motion. Today, we're mainly going to talk about ways to effectively open your narrative, to get from the first page to the inciting incident in a way that engages and excites the audience for the story to come. Now, when it comes to writing the very beginning of a narrative, I've found that there are two main schools of thought. The first is the one most of us will be familiar with from high school English and any creative writing courses we've taken, the in media res approach. For those unfamiliar with the Latin term, it's literally translated to into the middle of things, although it's more often defined as just beginning a story in the middle of some action already unfolding. This school of thought emphasizes the energy that an active opening can create, thrusting the reader into a situation that immediately has stakes, conflict, tension, and drama. In Lajos Egri's The Art of Dramatic Writing, 
He recommends starting the narrative at a point when, quote, at least one character has reached a turning point in their life. He calls this moment the point of attack, and in playwriting, it is definitely crucial to get the audience engaged that way. By initially holding back the setup and backstory of the conflict in motion, such beginnings, when done well, draw the audience into the narrative by making them want to understand the scene, who the players are, what the history is, and why all this is happening. The other school of thought tries to start at the earliest root cause of the story, following chronologically from first cause to final effect, to ensure that the reader or audience member has all the information they need to construct the story's full meaning. This is what I like to call the prologue approach. Starting your story with an event that is not part of the central plot, but is often necessary to inform what comes next. Tennessee Williams' Summer and Smoke and Neil Gaiman's Neverwhere are very dissimilar in tone and story, but both feature prologues set in the past with only tenuous connections to the main plot. That's because prologues largely serve to introduce central characters outside of conflict, so the audience becomes familiar with their personality or central flaw. They also illuminate the backstory of a fictional world or a historical context, or else set up mysteries more complicated than an in media res opening could effectively communicate. There's also a third approach that threads the line between these two, often called a cold open in film or a teaser in TV writing. Basically, it's a prologue that begins in media res of a situation of high energy or tension, placed before the actual plot gets going. Usually, the main plot in those stories has a slower and more deliberate pace, and the writer wants to avoid boring their audience right off the bat. This technique is a staple of the James Bond and Indiana Jones franchises, which often feature a standalone sequence with its own beginning, middle, and end at the start of the film. Sometimes it's directly connected to the main plot, such as in Raiders of the Lost Ark or Goldeneye, but most of the time, it's not. Nor do we really expect it to be. It's just a flashy mini-movie that establishes or reminds us of why we like this character and this world. Pretty much every network TV show uses some version of this technique as well, in order to keep the viewer from changing the channel during the opening credits. It's highly effective at grabbing the audience's attention before you begin dumping exposition on them, but it can also feel like a cheat if the cold open is more interesting than the story itself, or if most of your first act is undramatized information about setting or character. All three of these techniques are solid approaches to writing your opening, though they all have inherent dangers. With a poorly constructed prologue or cold open, you risk your audience feeling cheated if you don't deliver the same kind of storytelling in the rest of the narrative. Starting in media res can lead to you losing an inattentive audience due to confusion, especially if vital information or setup is dispensed before they get their bearings. In media res is thus best suited to mediums where you know that 90% of your audience won't be multitasking while consuming the narrative. This includes books, short stories, theatrical films, video games, or live theater, basically anything where the audience sits down to consume the narrative exclusively. However, for TV shows and podcasts, audience members often have your stories running in the background while they work on something else. While you shouldn't coddle or handhold them too much, because it risks insulting everyone who's actually paying attention, you do need to be a little less subtle in how you dispense story information. You have to find ways to make vital exposition specific and memorable, usually by linking it to a specific dramatic moment that is clear and consciously engaging to the audience. The classic example of Chekhov's gun might work in a film, if that gun is just shown in a close-up. But in an audio drama, someone will have to comment on it in order to clue the audience in to its significance. It's even better if the owner of the weapon makes some interesting, memorable, or funny commentary about it. The audience will consciously remember the joke because it made them laugh, 
but the knowledge that this person has a gun, and they'll probably use it, is now burned in their memory without them realizing. Thus, the prologue approach is often more useful in these mediums, as it clearly sets up and dramatizes narrative information in a memorable way, if done well. Whatever the case, the first moment of your story should have something that pulls people in, an intriguing or engaging element that's usually referred to as the hook. Now, there are an infinite number of ways to hook a reader, listener, or viewer, and I can't get too deep into the weeds in this episode. In a genre piece, it might be as simple as a single piece of imagery, music, or character work that immediately connects the story to others in the audience's mind. Sergio Leone films often begin with wide shots of barren, desert landscapes, with a lone gunslinger riding across it. That imagery has such a fundamental link to the myth of the Old West that, for those who enjoy the genre, those kinds of shots register immediate recognition, pleasure, and excitement, and so attachment to the genre carries the film until the actual plot begins. Other examples include the opening images of Clue and Knives Out, with their gothic atmosphere and mix of horror and humor, as well as the opening crawl of Star Wars, with its iconic score and starfield imagery now burned into the subconscious of 99% of filmgoers worldwide. This imagery technique is primarily used in film and TV, although visual, engaging passages of descriptive prose can evoke much the same kind of response. It was a dark and stormy night. It is a cliché for a reason, though one that's often mocked. Try to avoid writing in a way that draws so much attention to the prose, but instead let the reader's imagination fill in the details. In essence, this is what I did with several story episodes last season, using soundscapes and vague sensory details to paint a picture of the setting, mood, and genre in the listener's mind. Keep this kind of opening subtle and simple, but clear, no matter what the medium. This will help pull your reader into the story you're telling. In the book Crafty TV Writing, Alex Epstein points out the difference between storytelling that pulls readers in versus storytelling that pushes story at them. Quote, Pushing is giving the audience more story than they can absorb. You pull them in by giving them reasons to want more story than you've given them so far. Whatever you use for your hook, it should be something that pulls your reader in. Has anyone ever tried pushing something with a hook? No, obviously not. That's not what they're made for. Mystery, uncertainty, beauty, fear, excitement, tension, and conflict. All of these pull us into stories, engaging us on an emotional and instinctive level. Stories can't just stay on that level, of course. Otherwise, they run the risk of becoming emotionally exploitative. But they have to engage their audience first and foremost on what Blake Snyder calls a primal level, something that, quote, a caveman would understand. If a story doesn't engage us on a visceral gut level, it's lost us from page one. On the other hand, Dumping exposition, historical details, and biographical facts is pushing story at the audience before they have a reason to care. High fantasy and sci-fi run this risk more often than most other genres put together. Sorry to pick on Snowpiercer's opening yet again, but we still don't need an explanation of how the apocalypse started as the first thing we see on screen. Since we don't know the story world or anyone in it, we don't have much reason to care about how it ended. The opening text pushes exposition at us, rather than pulling us in. Though apparently it could have been much worse. The Weinstein Company reportedly wanted to bolt opening and closing monologues onto the already finished film, which, in my opinion, is one of the fastest ways to ruin a good movie. See the original cut of Blade Runner. 
Lord of the Rings, on the other hand, gets away with this by slowly drawing us into the narrative as it delivers exposition, using a carefully crafted prologue that drips with tone, mystery, tension, and suspense. When I first watched The Fellowship of the Ring in high school, that opening sequence was definitely my favorite part of the film. How did the filmmakers and screenwriters deliver that much exposition without completely losing the audience? First off, it definitely helped that the design of the story world allowed the characters in the historical prologue to still be alive and active in the main plot. It also helps that all the scenes shown were all fundamentally connected to the central narrative spine to defeat the influence of the One Ring and destroy it in the fires of Mount Doom, by providing a glimpse of how that quest could fail. It also reinforced many of the themes of the narrative, the cyclical pattern of history and the unchanging flaws of human, or hobbit, nature. And, most importantly, it pulled the audience in with skillful storytelling and a strong, dramatic structure. I mean, there's a hook for the hook. Galadriel's mysterious, otherworldly voice drifting out of the darkness, proclaiming that the world is changing. Much that once was is lost, for none now live who remember it. Immediately, our minds are filled with questions. Who's talking? What's changed? What was forgotten? Then, in the next few shots, we get answers. Galadriel, an ancient mythical world of elves, dwarves, and dark lords, the One Ring being forged, and the last alliance of elves and men. There's an inciting incident, Sauron's deception and conquest of Middle-earth. There are escalating stakes in the rising action, first the threat of Sauron's army, then the seemingly unstoppable Dark Lord himself, and then finally, a hopeless moment as the king dies and the army is all but routed. Then a crisis, climax, and reversal. Isildur turns and cuts the ring off Sauron's hand, defeating him. Falling action. Isildur takes the ring, and we follow it as it passes from person to person until it finally comes to rest with Bilbo Baggins, who is completely unaware of the bloody history he's now a part of. The prologue complete, the story quickly transitions to our protagonist, Frodo, and the real story starts in the quiet, peaceful Shire. Even so, we're sitting up in our seats all through the Hobbiton scenes, just waiting for the moment the ring's true nature is revealed and the darkness we just saw returns. In other words, we're hooked. Now, the book itself begins in a different way, as well it should. That kind of wide, sweeping prologue only really worked because of the unique capacities of filmmaking to compactify time and information through visual storytelling. If Tolkien had tried to accomplish the same kind of effect in his novel, it probably would have resulted in the appendices being put at the front of the first book, long before anyone had any reason to care about the family history of the Saxville Bagginses. In narrative openings or prologues, it's almost always better to stick to the most essential and interesting details of the characters and setting at hand, then let the backstory be filled in as the reader's investment grows. In the first few chapters of Les Miserables, we don't see Jean Valjean in prison like we do in the film version. We first meet Bishop Muriel and learn of his moral character, then see Valjean being thrown out and verbally abused by pretty much everyone in the village because of his convicted state. When the two characters collide, the dramatic question is raised simply by the contrast between them. Will Valjean be changed by this kind and generous man? The answer, as in all good storytelling, is yes, but not in the way you expect. How you pull people in varies from medium to medium and from story to story. The one thing you always have to do is engage your target audience at their level, rather than forcing them immediately to get on yours from the outset. 
Once you do, you can take them on a journey wherever you see fit. But if your audience is not hooked, then every piece of dialogue, exposition, and plot will feel pushed at an audience that doesn't want it yet. A disinterested or distanced audience won't make for an enjoyable storytelling experience for anyone. This is one of the reasons I think so many people disliked The Last Jedi. I know I'm poking the hornet's nest a little bit by talking about it, even if it has been three years since it was released, but when Luke Skywalker chucked his lightsaber over his shoulder without any explanation beforehand, it came off as a cheap attempt at shock value for most people. If it had been a different character, the moment might have landed and been a great way to establish their personality. But based on everything we knew about Luke Skywalker from the original trilogy, and the way he was portrayed in The Force Awakens, albeit briefly, we were primed to expect a sage, if somewhat disillusioned, old wizard and mentor, rather than a bitter, cranky old man. It was a perfectly acceptable direction for Luke's arc to take on paper, and subversions of expectation are a great tool for writers to challenge our preconceived notions. But at that point, we hadn't been sufficiently pulled into the narrative to earn that moment. Throwing the entire audience for a loop in the first moments of the story immediately makes some audience members disengage, get confused, and fall out of the story before it really begins. This is especially dangerous in a series with such strong expectations and emotions associated with it. If the film lost you at that point, then everything afterward felt like a story being pushed at you. Your emotional investment had been removed, and you were just along for the ride. While on the subject, a common problem that sequels tend to have in their first acts is exemplified by this narrative move in The Last Jedi. It's clear that the writers were banking on pre-existing buy-in to carry over from the original story, without establishing or reminding us of why we were invested in these characters. Terminator 2, often held up as one of the best movie sequels of all time, handles this problem very elegantly by having all of the characters undergo major changes between films. By carefully tuning the story world this way, Playing on our expectations and creating buy-in before the big subversion arrives, James Cameron and co-writer William Wisher effectively got to reintroduce us to characters who are the same, but different, and thus pull the audience into a story that felt just as fresh as the original. Another requirement for an effective beginning is knowing the ending. If your story is going to arc, to show the transformation of a character or a world from one state to another, you'll need to demonstrate what Lajos Egri refers to as the thesis. In most books on writing, it's also referred to as the ordinary world, a term derived from Joseph Campbell's monomyth structure of journey plots. In essence, you need to establish your starting point, the solid ground that your story and characters begin on before the plot begins to shake it to its core. It's Tatooine, the Shire, or Jean Valjean's selfish and fearful view of life. It's Lara Lynn, happily married to Ada, but holding on to an unrealistic expectation of the world, or Captain Astor's inability to square her ethical duty with her personal loyalties. Your thesis, which will be confronted throughout Act 2 by your antithesis, needs to have its day in the sun before it gets raked through the mud. We need to see the characters' needs, both psychological and moral. We need to know what the characters think of their ordinary world. Do they want to stay there, safe but ultimately unfulfilled? Or would they like nothing more than to change, but just can't? By clearly showing the problems with your protagonist's life and the reason they haven't changed before now, you make the arc of the story much more apparent and compelling to the reader. I think we can all relate to being stuck in some place, situation, or personal rut that feels inescapable. I mean, that's just human nature. Story, on the other hand, gives us the chance to see it resolved over the course of a physical or personal odyssey, whether that's leaving the planet with an old wizard, or just facing a situation that defies your view of reality, the antithesis of your ordinary world. 
We'll get into antithesis in later episodes about second act structure and character design, but for now, know that by clearly arguing for your thesis in the first act, you make the other acts of your story much stronger, especially your last. And by knowing your ending before you start, you can foreshadow the resolution of your story, building layers of irony and contrast between how your characters start off and where they will end. This will not only add to the reader's enjoyment of the narrative, but subconsciously cue the audience in and prime them for the major story turns later on. In other words, it will help you earn your twists and subversions, and make them feel natural to the plot. Most of the work of storytelling has to be done up front to make the storyline unfold naturally from page one. There are few things more frustrating than an unearned ending or an out-of-nowhere plot twist that takes you out of the story for the sake of shock value or narrative convenience. But on the flip side, there are few things quite so satisfying as an ending that leaves you stunned but satisfied, or a twist that was well foreshadowed by the rest of your narrative. A moment that perfectly fulfills the internal logic of the story in an unexpected way. And a large part of making sure those elements work is making sure they're set up from page one. For example, in Siren's Gold, the plot twist of Anne Bonny's fate was hinted at through the creepy nighttime atmosphere of the opening, the offhanded mention of ghouls and ghosts by Andrews, and most of all by Captain Barnett's insistence that Anne Bonny is dead, which pays off in spades at the third act turn when he clarifies his meaning and reveals the fate of the Morgan to Eli Barrett. As I knew that that plot twist would seem cheap without proper foreshadowing, I had to be absolutely sure I set it up to feel both surprising and inevitable to the audience. And the time to prepare your readers for those moments is right up top, when offering tantalizing mysteries and clues will pull them in and directly engage their attention. But what about your main character? Should they be on page one, kicking off their plot line right away? Not necessarily. As mentioned in some of the examples above, the prologue and cold open approaches sometimes tell a different side story that establishes the world, stakes, or threat without featuring the protagonist at all. Or perhaps it does feature the protagonist, but in a different subplot, the Indiana Jones approach. How does this work? How do you keep your main character off the screen or page for the first part of your story without losing narrative focus? Or how do you introduce the protagonist world in an interesting way without kicking off the threat of the main antagonist? These types of openings are more common than you'd think, and there are as many answers to those questions as there are stories in this style. If you do decide to start with a prologue or cold open that doesn't feature your protagonist or the central plot, try to figure out why you're doing so and what you're trying to accomplish. The solution will almost always be found in your answers to those questions. If you want to establish your hero's personality and skill set before they're confronted with an enemy too powerful to overcome, then a short, standalone sequence before the main story makes sense. If you want to have the main villain appear in the first scene to establish a sense of menace, you probably can't have your untested protagonist confront them just yet. In that case, an opening scene or sequence showing your villain in action will function in much the same way as in the first case. See Jaws and The Dark Knight. Just make sure that those sequences are interesting enough to hold the audience's attention while you lay the groundwork for the A-plot. Set up tension, stakes, goals, and conflict within these subplots to draw your audience in, and then deliver on it when the main plot finally begins. Then, with the balances correct, you've set a solid foundation for your story to spring from. Thank you for listening to this episode of Homestead on the Corner. Today's Act 1 elucidation was written and produced by Trevor Van Winkle and featured music from Lauren Baker and Jesse Hagen. 
Speaking of beginnings, our new fiction show, The Sheridan Tapes, begins Friday, April 24th. Keep an eye on this feed for updates, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Trevor underscore VW for more info, and check out patreon.com slash homesteadcorner if you want to help support our little production team. Next episode, we'll be talking about the next step in a strong first act, the inciting incident, or the thing that makes the story go in less pretentious terms. Starting this week, we'll be releasing new teaching episodes every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Well, that's about all for now. From the homestead on the corner, have a great day, and keep riding. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot-button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement, as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye.